Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy in the University of Colorado, Denver. And I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Delise, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Beata Stowarska, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oregon. Her book, Saussure's Linguistics, Structuralism, and Phenomenology, Course in General Linguistics After a Century, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. In the book, Stowarska guides us to consider Ferdinand de Saussure's Course in General Linguistics anew. By delving into Saussure's autograph notes, letters, and student lecture notes, Stowarska reframes all of the hierarchical pairs promoted as part of Saussure's doctrine, the signifier and the signified, the long and la parole, synchrony and diachrony. The book performs reading and writing without borders, that it also argues Saussure thought necessary to think about language. Along the way, it questions sedimented ideas about structuralism, post-structuralism, phenomenology, and the object of linguistics, which is to say language. Beata, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you today. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as a philosopher and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I was always interested, just broadly speaking, in the humanities, in uh, literature, in languages, in, in the arts. And I had a chance to study philosophy. Initially, I thought it would just be uh, a one year abroad kind of thing. Uh, I went to Belgium to study philosophy at the University of Leuven or Louvain. And I was hooked very quickly. I became very passionate about the field. I thought that I finally um, discovered uh, my vocation. I could have been an art historian, I could have been a linguist before, but I, uh, once exposed to philosophy, I knew that it was, it was it. I was educated, broadly speaking, in, especially in contemporary European philosophy with an emphasis on phenomenology, uh, Husserl, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, Levinas, and Jean-Paul Sartre as well. Since I received my PhD, I have been deliberately expanding my horizons to include feminist philosophy, uh, to include deconstruction uh, uh, as well. And I would say that my inclination is always to work at the borders of philosophy and and, and non-philosophy. So, for example, in my first book, which came out in 2009, Between You and I, Biological Phenomenology, I, I drew on contributions from developmental psychology, from sociolinguistics, as well as from the dialogical tradition in philosophy, especially Martin Buber, to develop this notion of um, what I call in the book I and you connectedness. So the idea that the self uh, stands in relation to a real or possible or virtual or imagined address C to a you. And I drew in that book extensively on uh, pronominal discourse, so these I and you pronouns, and I looked at how they uh, function in ordinary discourse, in ordinary conversations, and they and how they establish the I as a speaker who is oriented toward a you. And then also I looked into how these I and you roles or position are both interdependent in ordinary discourse, but also how they alternate so that there isn't a fixed I or an ego, but the self is sort of shaped both by the speaker uh, or the subject and the addressee uh, uh, modes. So there is no really a solitary ego 
at all based on this analysis, but we are always uh, participants in a, in a relation with uh, with uh, with an other. And so through this analysis, through this emphasis rather on phenomenal discourse, I became very acutely aware of how language shapes our identity, how it uh, shapes our relations uh, as well, how this language form or this existential drama, uh, grammar that situates us in, 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 in the world. And so in the second book, which came out uh, in 2015, uh, Saussure's Philosophy of Language as Phenomenology, this one, this one came out with Oxford University Press, I focused more expressly on, on this question of language and linguisticality. I should probably add that initially I set out to write a very different book. Um, so I wanted to write a book that is situated, broadly speaking, within contemporary European philosophy of language. I wanted to write about Derrida and about Merleau-Ponty and, and, and Kristeva. And I wanted to kind of look at various ways in which they engage questions of, of, of language. Uh, and I started my readings by looking at the course in general linguistics, this foundational text that is taken up by various authors in contemporary European philosophy, like Derrida, like Kristeva, like Merleau-Ponty. And I was amazed to discover that this canonical text is very much removed from the source materials, uh, from uh, Saussure's own writings about language, as well as, well as from the student lecture notes that this book is um, is is, uh, is is based on. Um, and so I, I read critical works, critical editions of the course by Tullio de Mauro, an Italian linguist. I read this in French and I read then uh, Engler's critical edition of the course. It's a massive book in, in, in French. Uh, uh, and then I was just so fascinated with, um, you know, both with what's how how far removed the course is from the sources, but also how this book, which is actually a posthumous reduction authored by two scholars who did not participate in Saussure's lectures in general linguistics and who kind of assumed this role of an intellectual disciple to Saussure and who was then able to um, author or ghostwrite the book in his name, I just thought it's a very interesting kind of story that we don't usually hear in, in, in philosophy or in the humanities more broadly. So I felt that we know very little about this great book and that we uh, gain to learn something by really attending to how this book was made uh, and how it became this great book in the contemporary uh, canon of, um, of ideas. Uh, so I wanted to tell this story. And, and I, I, I am retelling this story. I'm telling this story in a more kind of concise and I hope uh, more readable and engaging format in the book that came out most recently in, in uh, 2020 with Paul Grave Macmillan. So this, this, this book is um, deliberately written in a, uh, in a shorter and hopefully lighter and less jargony manner. I simply want to tell the readers like, hey, Here's what I think you might be interested in knowing uh, about the contemporary history of ideas, about how structuralism emerged also, about how phenomenology relates to structuralism, because all these questions have very much to do with that uh, great book 
uh, uh, titled the course in general linguistics. Yeah, I mean, it's so it is a it's a page turner. I felt like as I was reading it because I was like, how did this happen? I thought I knew what the course was about, and as I'm reading it from page one of your book, um, I had to let go of the legitimacy of what I thought I understood the course to be about. Um, and I think you've given us a nice sketch of kind of the process by which that happened, that Sessor's notes, his students' notes were not the guiding light, that these two editors really um, had a vision for the book and then sort of promoted that vision. And you talk about them engaging in sort of a seance um, to produce the course. So, uh, and it, it's partially because they were ghostwriting, but you also talk about this sort of inspired nature of their writing. So would you mind talking a little bit about how they produced this text, why seance is, um, mm. is a good characterization, how you came to that? Sure. Um, so it's interesting to note that the two editors of the course in general linguistics, uh, Charles Bailly and Albert de Chahey, they very deliberately positioned themselves in the role of a disciple to their great master, Ferdinand de Saussure. So they refer to him for notre grand maître, Ferdinand de Saussure, uh, our great master, Ferdinand de Saussure. And they do so even though they, as I briefly mentioned, they did not actually attend the lectures in general linguistics that Saussure uh, uh, taught at the University of Geneva. They uh, attended other lectures, but not specifically on the topic of general linguistics. And they very actively prevented the students who did attend these lectures from publishing their own lecture notes. And they used various strategies of, 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 of intimidation and, and silencing to prevent the students from uh, giving a testimony to uh, uh, Saussure's teaching. And they usurped this role of a, of a direct disciple, of a, of a, of a rightful heir, to Ferdinand de Saussure in order to then be recognized as someone who has the right to say what Saussure's own linguistics really is about. Um, so this master-disciple bond is, is really interesting because it, um, it both enabled them to kind of claim a certain degree of intellectual intimacy with Saussure himself to uh, it enables them to claim the right to uh, intuit what his own uh, ideas about general linguistics were, even though at that time Saussure was deceased. So they could not really uh, consult with him and he could not contradict them on their uh, uh, presentation of his ideas, but they could speak on his behalf. They could, as it were, infer from from him or from his mind after the grave, uh, I mean after after death, what uh, you know what he supposedly was was uh, was himself thinking. So here's this notion of a séance of of engaging in a kind of a reading of uh, you know of what the the wandering ghost uh, himself wants to say, what he believes. Uh, so we can sort of imagine how the ghost would, as it were, be moving the hand and dictating uh, uh, what, uh, you know, what his own ideas actually, actually uh, were. I compare this method or this sort of this seance to divination in the book. Uh, 
the editors often note, uh, for example, in the preface to the course, they say that they preferred to infer, or in the French, deviner, what uh, Cecilia's innermost ideas were. Uh, and deviner, the, the, the verb, comes from ultimately from the Latin eh, divus, God, and so it indicates this quasi-supernatural insight into spiritual entities or into, uh, uh, into ideas that the editors uh, would have had as, again, uh, his disciples, as rightful heirs to his intellectual estate, estate as someone who could speak on behalf of the past master master uh, uh, in this tone of presumed uh, scientific uh, objectivity and and neutrality um, so I think I think the science is is, is uh, this kind of this method of, of using uh, intuition of divining what somebody really um, believes what his innermost thoughts are is interesting because it tells us a lot about how academic institutions uh, uh, operate, especially in the European context in the 20th century, but perhaps beyond as well. It indicates uh, these, what I like to call elementary uh, kinship structures in the, in the academy. So this notion of, uh, of there being a lineage from the master to the disciple that mimics the patrilineal relation between the father and the son. And so property, material or intellectual, can be passed down along this line from the master to the disciple, like from father to son. The title, an academic title, can be passed down, for example, of being a chair in general linguistics at the University of Geneva. It can be passed down this lineage from the master to the disciple, as was indeed the case with um, <clears throat> with both uh, Bailly and Sachehe, who who assumed this academic uh, uh, title uh, after Sussir's death. And so I'm very interested in these questions of who has the right to say what counts as being true about past masters, you know, who is, uh, who is considered to be a rightful heir or a rightful speaker who gets to speak on behalf of a past master. And, uh, and I believe that these socioacademic lineages um, Tell us a lot about the production of knowledge in um, in academic institutions, and that perhaps the kind of the narrowness of the academic lineage, uh, the emphasis on on sameness, on passing down the doctrine in an you know in a sort of an un, un, um, un, altered manner, it is tied to I, I believe to a certain sort of doctrinal quality of of ideas. Um, both perhaps are overly narrow and, and exclusive. And, and so I think we stand to learn a lot about um, how the um, relations of power and dominance and prestige in the academy, how they drive the history of ideas, but also how, uh, uh, how they can promote a, 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 a sort of a exclusionary forms uh, and, and narrow doctrinal understandings. And so I think that... Uh, the kind of the morale of the story is that the academy benefits from from uh, from diversity because then ideas themselves are likely to be more complex and richer uh, as well. 
Yeah, and one of the one of the things you make um, really clear in this in this particular case is that the motto many of us learned from the general course was was something to the effect of the only true object of study in linguistics is the language considered in itself and for its own sake. And you really give this evidence that that's an editorial insertion um, and that Saussure's understanding is, as you say, much more complex, much more nuanced, much less given to being doctrine, actually. Um, and that part of what part of what makes his view more complex is that it's perspectival. He thinks the perspective that you take on language shapes or constitutes the object um, that you're studying. And so um, language requires a, a perspectival orientation, a sort of like self-aware perspectival orientation to its study. Um, and so will you draw out then the difference, right, between the doctrine that's this editorial insertion and what Cesar is actually, what he is actually discovering about language in his work? Sure. Um so, so you you just mentioned the the concluding lines of the course that language is an object that um, paraphrasing should be uh, studied in itself and for its own sake. Uh, these are uh, the famous concluding lines, sometimes referred to as the famous formula um, that um, is oftentimes cited as a kind of quintessential Saussurianism. It's interesting to note um, that. The line is apocryphal. There are no sources in 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 the materials from the Nahuas that justify the insertion of these famous concluding lines to the course. Uh, these lines are important because, in fact, they are a response to a question raised early on in the book in the introduction as to what is the object of general linguistics. And so the entire book is framed around this opening question and then the concluding uh, response to it. Um, the, uh, it's, it's perhaps also interesting to know that the editors in this case, uh, they ins inserted the, these concluding lines into the, uh, into the book. They also cited their own insertion in, uh, in, in book reviews and in technical articles in, in, in general linguistics as if it was coming from Saussure himself, right? So, so they definitely went to great lengths to cement this formula as quintessential Saussurianism to really make it sound like it was uh, a, a kind of a motto issuing from the great taskmaster him, himself. Um, I also want to add that the um, that this famous formula is often cited in structuralist literature, so it has become a structuralist motto as well, uh, and it's usually then cited in an admiring uh, tone. The phenomenologist, for example, Paul Ricoeur, uh, cites it as well, but now uh, under the guise of this semiological challenge, as he calls it, that um, Saussurean linguistics raises to phenomenology. Um, so uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the famous formula has acquired a lot of weight uh, uh, for the development uh, of both structuralism and, and phenomenology. And, and it kind of tends to indicate that there is a seamless transition from Caesarianism to, to structuralism um, in the way in which the course has been a, a predominantly received within structuralism. As a, as a kind of a programmatic statement uh, that enables us to both identify what the object of general linguistics is, which is 
the language, la langue, language as a structured system of relations. And then this notion of objectivity uh, was taken up in other um, areas in the humanities, like uh, psychoanalysis or cultural anthropology uh, with Lacan and with Lévi-Strauss. And so they very very much um, adopted this notion of uh, of objectivity in the humanities uh, as captured by this famous formula that language is an object that can be studied on its own. Perhaps then the unconscious is an object that can be studied on its own with Lacan or kinship structures are a form of uh, an object that can be studied on its own with uh, with Claude Lévi-Strauss. Now to, to get to your question about how, um, how this famous formula, this conclusion of the course relates to the sources, uh, we definitely find a great emphasis on um, on points of view in the source material materials. So Cecilia emphasizes uh, on several occasions that the object in linguistics is not a self-standing factum that exists in the world, but it emerges always in conjunction to the scientist's point of view. Right, so there's a there's a correlation between subjective perspectival orientation and what is fined at the end of that um, of that uh, uh, intention uh, issuing from the subject. We also, interestingly enough, find a very extensive critique uh, by Saussure of what he calls an involuntary assumption of substance. So he is critical of the tendency in linguistics until up to his time to kind of think about language as if it were a substance, as if it were kind of a pre-existent entity that um, does not really need a speaker or a scholar in order to exist. So he's very critical of this, um, of the kind of the substance metaphysical approach in in linguistics. And he uh, emphasizes that uh, points of view are irreducible in in linguistics. Uh, He does, as reflected in the course, identify two major perspectival orientations or points of view in linguistics. That's the famous synchronic and diachronic perspective onto language. So looking at language diachronically across time, how it evolves and changes in, in, in time, or focusing on a, a time slice or, or kind of a relatively stable arrangement uh, of signs within a given um, era. Um, the course reflects the importance uh, of these two perspectives, synchrony and, and diachrony. And so, for example, if we're reading uh, the introduction to the course, we will learn about um, the, 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 the existence of these two basic points of view, uh, um, the synchronous one and the diachronous one. But the way in which the introduction proceeds is to uh, emphasize the importance of synchrony. Synchrony is privileged uh, ultimately as a, as, a, as a viewpoint or a perspective that uh, gives us unmediated direct access to the object itself, la langue, the language uh, construed as a system of relations between between signs. So diachrony is kind of displaced as a um, uh, 
as, a, as an external perspective, uh, one that we could seemingly dispense with once we attain this head-on access to, to language itself. Uh, whereas in the sources, there's a lot of emphasis on the um, duality of viewpoints and how these viewpoints are both partial and interlinked. So we cannot really opt for one at the exclusion of the other, but we're kind of moving and shifting our orientation to that very complex linguistic field. And uh, and we cannot really opt for, for, for one at the exclusion of the other, because this would iron out this, this duality uh, uh, that Cecilia uh, considers to be essential to both language and to language study. Yeah, it's so clear um, from your from your reading of the Naklas and the way that Sassur, Sassur sort of reveled in the complexity or he really respected that complexity and seemed to be willing to really stay with it. Um, and part of what unfortunately happens in the editorial hands that the course came into is that it's there are these points at which they just try to make things simple for the sake of science or something like this, right? To make the object approachable. But it seems like all you know, Sassur himself was rather taken with its complexity, was was rather um, motivated by it, and really found it. He seems to have gone towards it in his writings. Yes, I definitely think it's fair. So that's I think the the, the kind of the beauty, but also the drama and the tragedy of Sassur's work and of his life is that he was consumed with this question of, of, of what language is and what is the best way of approaching it. Uh, he was very dis disillusioned with the state of the sciences at his time, and he thought that sciences needed to undergo a radical reform. Uh, it, at the same time, you know, he had a hard time writing a book on general linguistics himself. Uh, and I think in part because he was disillusioned uh, with the normative expectations as to uh, what a recognizable academic discipline should look like. And I think he was uh, uh, perhaps disillusioned with the academic uh, format of a treatise that needs to be organized, you know, using this architecture of... Uh, Parts and chapters. Uh, I, you know, he um, he wrote incessantly. So I talk about the, uh, you know, the many notebooks that he filled with notes, and they have to do with all aspects of of of, of, of language. Um, uh, but he resisted publishing uh, kind of a recognizable academic treatise himself. So I think that he is consumed with this question of, um, you know, how do we begin uh, philosophy or science, which I compared to uh, the questions that Hegel raises in, in his work as well, right, about like, what is the right way of, uh, you know, of uh, beginning a, 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 a science that is supposed to give us a kind of a, a complete overview of this very complex heterogeneous field called called language. Um, so I believe that Cecilia is extremely self-reflective in that process, that he is very acutely aware of the methodological you know, issues, concerns raised when we approach a, an, an object so-called that is as complex and, and uh, heterogeneous as language itself, right? Because language exists in the 
present moment, but also in the past. It, um, you know, it's written, it is also spoken. We can attend to the signifying dimension of it, you know, the acoustic dimension, the graphic dimension, or we can attend to the idea, the signified content that is conveyed by it. Uh, you know, we can talk about the social world, the speech community where language emerges, or we can talk about the documents, uh, um, this oral or written that this community produces, right? So wherever we look, we're going to encounter these dual notions and, uh, you know, and how can we be scientific about that, right? How can we be, how can we be scientific considering also the fact that this scholar is a speaking subject? as well and so is entangled and immersed in the very you know notion or object so-called that is to be uh to be examined right so so i think that um this here is a very complex self-reflective philosophical thinking whose uh, sort of style of approaching the question of of language oftentimes resemble resembles the uh, phenomenological orientation that pays attention to these questions of subjectivity of consciousness, of our um, kind of irreducible uh, entanglement or involvement in the very subject matter that we seek to um, examine. Yeah, and that's, so part of what I wanted to ask about was was Derrida's reading of Cesar, which is so influential. In fact, I told a friend who's a philosopher that I was interviewing you about your book on Cesar, and he was like, oh, you know, I think everything I know about Cesar is it's through Derrida, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, he's really influential on this, on this thinker. Um, and you really argue that Saussure and Derrida are much closer um, than Derrida would have us see given his reading. And so um, we talk a little bit about how they're closer and, and also how Derrida w- would have missed that, right? Like how Derrida comes to his view. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um so I spend a lot of time with Derrida's reading of Saussure because, as, as you mentioned, it is so highly influential. And uh, perhaps the most influential uh, reading is found in of grammatology, where Derrida is performing this very subtle, interesting reading of uh, the course in general linguistics and where he argues um, that uh, the text unravels itself, it is internally divided between, on the one hand, uh, offering this very classical uh, narrative uh, that echoes with the entire Western metaphysical tradition, whereby presence is privileged, and so speech would be privileged by Saussure because it purportedly offers us direct access to you know, the plenum of, of, of meaning to what exactly the speaker wants to, to say. But then on the other hand, the, the same sphere is also, uh, for example, using analogies from writing uh, to talk about what language itself is. And he tells us that, uh, you know, language is nothing but a system of differences. And so writing, uh, even though initially it seems to be kind of demonized, uh, uh, by Saussure as an external cloak that disguises what language itself is, in fact, shapes the way in which he defines and, and analyzes and interprets writing itself, right? Um, yeah, so I'm interested in how, you know, the way in which Derrida makes this case is, is, is um, shaped 
by the contents of uh, of the course and especially by what is of editorial making in the course, right? So many citations uh, uh, we find in our grammatology from the course are in fact of editorial making. And just to give you uh, an example, um, you know, Derrida cites the series saying that writing is a is a, is a, is a kind of deceitful disguise of language itself. Uh, right. So uh, writing is uh, in in the French in the past vêtement travestissement. So there is this notion of a kind of a transvestite disguise uh, that writing puts on, uh, uh, whereby it would. Um, you know, conceal what language itself actually is. And, and another uh, example that I really like is, um, you know, Derrida talks about the uh, uh, purported monstrosity and unnatural unnaturalness of writing for 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 Cicere. And so he says that um, um, that a man proposing a fixed language would be like a hen hatching a duck's egg. Right. So here the idea is that writing any writing system, as well as in artificial language like Esperanto, kind of performs a very unnatural kinship relation of adoptive parenthood. And supposedly the reader is uh, to be uh, shocked by this unnatural kind of kinship scenario and to, uh, uh, you know, look at writing with absolute sense of horror. Now, when you look at the sources, you'll see that Cicero does use this analogy, but in fact, it functions quite differently. So he says that language itself is a bit like a duck that has been hatched by a chicken. And that is necessarily so. So that means that language itself necessarily, whether it's speaking or writing or, or, or even thinking, is necessarily subject to multiple adoptions in various unforeseeable milieus. So we don't know exactly where it's going to be hatched, and we don't know exactly know where it's going to be, uh, a, you know, adopted and taken up and taken into new directions as well, right? So, so uh, it, yeah. To the point of appreciation, right, for Cesar, like he loves this. Well, exactly, he loves this. I mean, I think that's the, you know, that's, 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 that's exactly what to him is fascinating about language, right? It, it, it's this, it's this unpredictability of it. It, it is, it's the fact that it is subject always to, you know, to, to foreign forces, that it is not controlled uh, by, say, you know, the, the author of Esperanto, right? To be a, a living language, it needs to be taken up in, in all kinds of contexts and its fate is unknown. Uh, it cannot be scripted in advance. So Cecilia loves it. He is not, you know, this doctrinal, dogmatic thinker who wants to homogenize language into this, you know, portable little box where, a, a, you know, an object a, a can be contained. A, he, uh, I think he revels, like you said, in, in this mystery uh, of, of, of language itself. Um, and so all this raises the question, like, why didn't Derrida look at the Nachlas? Why is he so attached to this volume of the course in general linguistics? Why is he deconstructing this book and not attending to the textual universe where perhaps deconstruction is already underway within Cicero's own writings? 
uh, that's a question that that's a challenge that I raised to to Derrida, right? For being so firmly attached to the book, for being a citizen of the civilization of the book in the way that he performs his reading of uh, of Cicero, and for not entering into this unbounded sexuality uh, um, that um, you know Cicero is unpublished uh, and and less book like writing offers. But having said all that, I'm not. My my goal isn't simply to correct Derrida, um, and you know, and to 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 kind of expose him to have missed uh, uh, what Cecilia himself had to say. My my bigger goal in all this is to actually say that um, that Derrida and Cecilia are uh, much closer than we like to think. And uh, or that they think that their understanding of cultural you know, signification is much closely aligned uh, than just reading Derrida on Saussure may suggest. Um, and so I developed two ideas in that regard, um, and I sort of label them by borrowing two terms from Derrida himself, and, and they are entrainment and contamination. Um, so I argue that for, for, for both Saussure and Derrida, entrainment and contamination are in fact primary. So entrainment has very much to do with the ways in which any, say, individual sign is entrained or shaped, uh, even wrought internally by its relations to everything else in the system, right? So if we're thinking about the way in which the course presents cultural uh, signification or linguistic signification. It opens in chapter one with a focus on the linguistic sign. And, uh, and we read that ling the linguistic sign is characterized by arbitrariness because there is no natural relation of resemblance or mimicry between the signifier, the signifying content, and the signified idea. Right. The example there is uh, is of, of uh, the Latin arbor, a tree that um, supposedly labels a kind of a universal idea of this natural category, a tree. And this labeling can occur differently depending on what world language you're looking at. Right. But when, um, you know, when tracking the development of the serious thinking about arbitrariness and signification in the lecture notes, we see that this initial focus on the sign is just the first step in a much longer analysis that actually is going to revise a, a, the initially made claim, right? So we find out that this focus, this myopic focus on the sign itself needs to be displaced by a more global perspective on language as a whole and on relations between signs uh, within within the system. So in the beginning was not the word, in the beginning was a web of relations uh, connecting, right, connecting words. Um, and so Cecilia actually dictates to his students that, you know, the projected chapter uh, discussed at this point in the lectures it should be renamed as from, from the sign, linguistic sign, to language as a system of signs, uh, right? And this, this change does not transpire in the published course. And so we begin still with a fairly kind of classical preoccupation with an individual word and then are kind of expanding it to, to look at the, uh, the web of relations uh, 
for Cecilia, the web is primary. Um, um, coming back to Derrida, he, uh, is, you know, he has this very inspired reading of of Cecilia in the book Gla, where he, uh, kind of following the title, he looks at um, the ways in which Cecilia discusses uh, onomatopoeic expressions uh, in in still chapter one from the course. So expressions that uh, supposedly imitate their sound origin in nature, right? Gla or nail is supposed to imitate um, the sound made by a bell, and uh, and it would therefore mimic its um, uh, you know its 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 original source is found in nature. It would stand otherwise differently put. In a kind of a one-to-one relation, right? The signifier would stand in a one-to-one relation to whatever its uh, original or, or originating content was. And then Cecilia, um, excuse me, uh, Derrida rather says, well, isn't it the case that um, you know the, the 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 ear is struck not just by the you know the the natural sound itself, but rather by what the word, the signifier, actually signifies? And isn't it only because of that that we can recognize the the word as as meaning uh, you know the sound made by a bell rather than something else right so so there are no onomatopoeias there are no signs or words directly imitating their sound source words or signs are always again entrained within the web or system of relations and and then again looking at the source. Sources from the Nachlas is useful because we see that everything that we read about onomatopoeias in chapter one is actually um, of editorial making. So these notions that there might be onomatopoeic expressions that directly imitate their sound source is of editorial making. So Sir, in the sources himself emphasizes that there are no natural um, in, made or sourced expressions, every sign is always already shaped by relations to the system itself, right? So entrainment is primary for for, for Cecilia as much as, as for Derrida. It is the systemic dimension or the relational dimension of language as a whole that makes individual signs or words signify, right? That's why we can hear the sound of a bell, right? Or we can suggest Sound of a bell by uh, by talking about the nail uh, um, or the gla, right? But they do not, you know, they do not need to resemble. They don't actually resemble uh, their sound source. They they do not signify by virtue of something like a um, suggestive sonority, but rather by virtue of signification. So always on the question of entrainment, and then a related question has to do with um, with with contamination. Um, so just to put it very sort of bluntly, uh, for 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 Derrida, contamination indicates the various ways in which what is violently excluded from a given system infiltrates it, uh, contaminates it, pervades it, right? Uh, so it kind of haunts. The very scene, the very presumed interiority from which it was supposed to be exposed, uh, and we can think about this in terms of how the language system, in general linguistics, is supposed to expose everything that is external to it: is society, history, 
subjectivity, um, you know, contingency, and so on, are all to be considered as extra linguistic factors that do not inhere in the interiority of the system itself, right? This is, this is the structuralist understanding of language, uh, where language is this relatively closed and autonomous system, uh, distinguished from the social world, distinguished from history, and, and so on. Now, it's fascinating when we are reading the series' own reflections on on, on on language and, for example, on the inner relation between the language system and the social world, he is telling us that language is necessarily situated within the social world. So to talk about language solely as an entrained web of semiological relations would still be to traffic in what he calls an irreality in a very abstracted and reductive and partial uh, notion. So um, instead, we should actually uh, consider language always within its situated context. And so, for example, he gives this analogy of, uh, of uh, a ship at sea that is a little bit like in this hen and duck analogy, a, a, a ship at sea is always um, driven by forces that are not completely subject to its control, right? A ship mm-hmm. at sea right, may be subject to, you know, pirate attacks or to, you know, the currents in the sea, to a storm. A mutiny can break out on a ship and uh, wreak havoc. Um, so there are all these phenomena, all these events that um, can disrupt the ship. And, uh, you know, or can take it on a new course, an unpredictable course, but they are intrinsic and essential to what language itself is or to what a ship in its uh, context, in its maritime environment actually is, right? So Cecilia is very critical of, uh, you know, what he calls an engineer's viewpoint, uh, whereby an engineer, you know, situated on dry land would simply kind of examine the internal structure of the ship, how it's built, what are the different elements, how do they interrelate, and so on, right? A kind of a structuralist understanding of, of language that is relatively static and disengaged. He says this view is very partial and, and, uh, and is likely to engender uh, uh, untenable abstractions. We actually always have to look at the ship in its situated context. We have to look at how it will move. Uh, uh, you know, when it is, when it is at sea, when it is in its sort of, you know, proper habitat, right? So in the same way, um, you know, we can say to kind of come back to Derrida is that, you know, the ship is contaminated, right, by, by everything that might, you know, might happen to it. Uh, and we cannot predict what will happen to it and when, right? It is subject to these forces that seem to be external, but in fact, enable it, you know, carry it along its course and can take it off course as well, right? Uh, uh, both, uh, you know, both kind of directions uh, uh, need to be taken into account. You know, there's this um, unpredictability contingency and so on that needs to be, uh, you know, included in a, in a rich, robust understanding of what language itself is. Right. So, uh, so, so in some, I think that uh, Derrida and Cecilia agree that this uh, 
kind of static or purely synchronous understanding of, of language is, um, is too abstracted, is too reductive. Uh, um, and that we need to think about how the inner and the outer always intersect, interrelate, uh, uh, and so on. And so ultimately, I would, I would, I would basically invite us, you know, readers of the sphere and of Derrida in 2020 to, um, you know, to, to read the uh, writings by Sphere himself, you know, the course, but also more broadly, you know, the writings in general linguistics, see what Sphere had to say about language and language study, because I think then we will um, stop thinking about Sphere as this dogmatist and as an easy object of a deconstructive reading and actually see him as someone who may be performing a, a deconstruction in the way in which he is um, emphasizing these uh, these dualities, these uh, relationalities between the inner and the outer, you know, between between say in this case language and the social world uh, uh, as well. And this, I think, leads me to a question I had throughout the book because you do mention that Cesar filled over was it two hundred notebooks with his mm-hmm. and. And you give a really, I think, um, compelling reading of this, which you call him a citizen of the civilization of writing. And you argue at another point, his intellectual biography is a testimony to the end of the book. And you mean this in like, in a very um, like laudatory way, like you mean that mm-hmm. in a good way. Yeah. Um, and you you actually credit Merleau-Ponty with being one of his better readers, Um whereas Merleau-Ponty has often been critiqued for not really understanding Cesar. And so I, this all leads me actually to kind of a weird question, I guess, <laughs> which is, is like, did you, were you tempted to just fill some notebooks on all of this? Um, mm. Like I can imagine it being sort of, um, I can imagine being entrained by Cesar's own reticence mm. to publish and the way that he, was encountering these discoveries as something he could teach, but not necessarily publish. Like, how did you get past that? How did you not just fill notebooks? No, I, I love this question um, because I think it identifies the the paradox of writing, um, you know, of both writing a book about Saussure, his linguistics, and wanting to be faithful to that, and wanting to reflect this. Um, this endless writing process he engages in, his reticence to publish a book, and still me uh, publishing a book, uh, uh, detailing all that. And then a related paradox is, why should we continue reading the book, the great book titled The Course in General Linguistics, if it is so flawed, if it really misrepresents Saussure's own uh, understanding of General linguistics, as we can reconstruct it from from his uh, from his writings. Uh, so I think I think there is a paradox there. Uh, and my way of kind of you know addressing the paradox is to say that uh, perhaps we are all still as as academics uh, as scholars, uh, partially at least citizens in the in the civilization of the book. Uh, uh, we are. You know, so beholden to past masters and the canon of great books, right? I, you know, and so I, I think that these 
books have a hold on our thinking and what we consider to be of import in uh, in the history of ideas, including the contemporary history. So the question that I often have is not only why did I write a book, uh, but also why is this book, The Course in General Linguistics, so successful um, right and and you know so established and furthermore is it not the case that the presence of this book on the market of ideas continues to draw attention to Saussure and to general linguistics right so let's imagine a world when this book was not ghost written and published in his name would we be having this conversation today would right. there be right would there be a lot of you know interest in 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 Saussurean linguistics, or would he have, um, you know, been forgotten? Right? Would he have kind of fallen into this provincial obscurity of uh, of, of of Geneva and perhaps be recognized only by some expert in historical linguistics, but not by you know students and scholars, uh, both in philosophy and in the humanities, right? So you know, so I I, I guess I would want to emphasize the the paradoxical nature of both writing books and of writing books about great books, it, you know, there is um, there is something problematic about that, right? I mean, we are performing and you know and and kind of re-entrenching the civilization of the book in doing so. Uh, but I guess I want us, you know, if and when we continue reading books like the course, I want us to at least engage in a in a critical reading that is mindful of both how this book was made and uh, and at what cost, what got excluded in the process, right? Uh, so I, I'm hoping that we can read both the book and the Nahlas. Uh, you know, some linguists, some scholars in social linguistics say that basically, you know, we should abandon the course once and for all. It's, it's such a flawed text that it doesn't really merit you know, the name of, of uh, you know, representing Saussurean linguistics, let's only read from the historically uh, authentic sources and, and kind of leave it at that. So, you know, that's one possibility, right, is to, you know, is to abandon this this, this book and perhaps no longer write books uh, either. Uh, you know, I think in the context of uh, contemporary history of ideas, uh, we will probably continue <laughs> teaching great books, right? Uh, and then the question becomes more like, how do we do it, right? Yeah. Do we, right? Do we do it in a, you know, in a in a in a way that is mindful of this very fraught and complex history, right? Do we want to tell our students, hey, here's how the sausage was made, right? Here's who you know who did not get to tell their story about. Uh, uh, you know, general linguistics, for example, right? Here is, you know, who got silenced, who got excluded from the inner circle of knowledge production. You know, here's who did not get to sit at the seance table and, uh, you know, and intuit what the past master himself thought, you know? So so I would love for us to uh, continue reading the course um, today, but to do it in a way that is informed by uh, by social critique, uh, that is informed by um, perhaps a greater acknowledgement of how these uh, you know relations of, of of power, inclusion, and exclusion 
in, in the academy, how they drive the history of ideas, how they shape what we consider to be uh, official truth, and how they sideline, you know, smaller truths uh, in, in the process as well, right? And kind of have us raise the question, like, what do we do with that? You know, how do we perform knowledge uh, with a deeper understanding of these processes of, of, of exclusion? Uh, uh, you know, how, how do we perform academy better? How do we diversify it? Uh, uh, you know, how do we make sure that it's not only great books, but also say letters, you know, correspondence uh, by related actors that is included on our reading list, you know. So, so, uh, um, so, yeah, there is a paradox there, but I think that there are various kind of ways of, of, um, you know, of addressing it, and 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 I'd like us to address it in a way that is um, socially responsible, that is kind of mindful, that we create a certain culture. Uh, uh, in, in the academy and that uh, in the culture that we create is likely to generate um, greater pluralism or perhaps be uh, uh, continue to be as exclusive as, uh, as historically academy tended to be. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I think about that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And the book is a, good, is a great guide to the project that you, you propose we engage in. Um, so where where are you going next? What's your next project? Um, so I'm currently working on a slightly different project, uh, perhaps still related, but now uh, branching out into uh, social political philosophy. I have a project uh, dealing with the moral ambiguity of violence. Mm. And um, yeah, so I'm trying uh, to kind of rethink what violence is. I'm trying to... Um, Think about the the kind of duality still uh, endemic to 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 violence, and to think about it not only in this con- condemnatory manner as a, as a destructive and harmful force, but also to think about it in in terms of uh, life affirmation and expression of vital energies, uh, kind of in in agreement with the etymology of the term uh, from Latin vis, everything having to do with life and energy and force. So a force that can be destructive, but can also be life uh, affirming. And so I have a uh, chapter that's coming out in September of this year, 2020, uh, discussing the um, um, views on this question of, of, of legitimacy, moral and metaphysical violence in the works of Simone de Beauvoir and Frantz Fanon. Uh, this is my first step in what I hope will ultimately become perhaps yet another book that I'm going to write. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to the article and to the the possible book project. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. 